Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies, nursing a weak voice here as we plunge into Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20, which I have entitled, The Son of Man Appears to John. Our context is this. In the first eight verses of Revelation, John told his readers that Jesus is coming soon. Capital S, capital O, capital O, capital N, soon. And we gave a pretty good introduction to the book of Revelation in those eight verses. So now we're just going to see who's giving the revelation. We'll talk about what that revelation is in future chapters. So we start in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. So John identifies himself with his readers. He calls them their brother. He is an apostle, but, you know, apostles were not big shots. They were brothers. And fellow partaker, he suffered suffered in tribulation. After all, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. So when you're enslaved, imprisoned, you are a partaker, a sharer in tribulation. He's writing to folks right before AD 70 when the Jews were persecuting the Christians something awful, what Jesus called in the Olivet Discourse the Great Tribulation. So John says, yep, well, he was suffering tribulation from the Romans, not from the Jews, but he's a fellow sharer in that tribulation but he's also a share in the kingdom. Notice how strange it is that you put tribulation and kingdom together. Usually you don't think of kings being in tribulation, but this is what the situation was for Christians. And he was a share of the perseverance, which is in Jesus. John is trying to emphasize the perseverance to get them through the trials that they're going to undergo that he's going to tell about here in the run-up to AD 70 when Jerusalem is destroyed. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven chalices are all talking about the judgment that's coming on Israel and, and and what's coming. He was on an island called Patmos. Now, Patmos is a little island off the western coast of Turkey, present-day Turkey, Anatolia. I've been there. I remember going there and thinking, this is where they put John in exile. This place is paradise, man. You look out, you see the blue sea and the blue sky, and it's just the weather was so nice, the trees everywhere. It was just such a beautiful place. Well... Yeah, that's because there's a little bit of civilization there now, a lot of tourists. But back then, when John was on the island, not so good. It was just a rock. He's there by himself. And, of course, the Greek Orthodox Church has the very cave where John received the revelation, where he wrote the book. They've even got the little place, the table or the rock or whatever he wrote it on, which, of course, is nonsense. But at any rate, Patmos is an historical place where John was exiled by the Roman government. He was exiled there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because of the word of God means because he was preaching the word of God and people didn't like to hear that, so they put him on the island. And because of the testimony of Jesus, testimony is a little bit ambiguous. Does that mean the testimony of John about Jesus? Or is the testimony which which Jesus gave to the church? And because of that testimony, people believed it. And then because they believed it, they got put in jail. They got persecuted. I don't know. I tend to think it's the testimony about Jesus testimony of Jesus, the testimony that I'm giving of Jesus or about Jesus is why I got put into exile on Patmos. I think it's the best way to read that. Now notice that John is a partaker in the tribulation and kingdom. Those are the two very things that dispensationalist futurists say that don't happen to the church until the very end of time. Well, here John is saying, no, right now I'm going through tribulation and right now I'm in the kingdom of God. The dispensationalists say the kingdom of God doesn't start until the millennium, the church is a mere parenthesis, a gap, which I consider the biggest bunch of bologna sausage that I've ever heard. And I've heard a lot of it. So, and as far as the Great Tribulation, well, of course, 
The church is jerked, according to the dispensationalist fantasy theology, the church is jerked out of the tribulation right before the millennium at the end of time. But John says, no, I'm in the tribulation now. And this illustrates the theme of Revelation, which is, I remember I told you there were three frames, three themes, as I mentioned in the introduction to this book and audio number one on Revelation, Revelation 1, 1 through 8. That was one of the themes is deliverance for the people of God from the those that are persecuting them. And who persecuted them? Theme number two, the Jews and the Romans. The first theme, of course, is Jesus is coming soon to bring judgment upon those who murdered him, apostate Israel. Now, this tribulation that John is talking about is probably referring to the Great Tribulation, which occurred during the run-up to eighty seventy. Jesus predicted it. Matthew 24, 6-7, Before this generation shall pass away, remember the time indicators, he said, before the generation shall pass away, verse 34, Matthew 24 and verse 21, then shall be great tribulation. So that great tribulation happened before the generation passed away when Jesus was speaking, which was between 80, 30, and 70. So during that time, there's a great tribulation. The very phrase there is used in verse 21, Matthew 24, great tribulation. So that's probably what John's referring to. Now, John also refers to the fact that he's in a kingdom, that the kingdom arrived at the first coming of Christ. I mentioned in the last audio how Daniel talked about the fifth monarchy that smashed the toes of the fourth monstrous beast, which was the Roman Empire, and then started spreading all over the world. And then how Jesus went up to receive a kingdom and dominion and dominion and dominion and a kingdom from the ancient of days. That was the kingdom. It happened when the Roman Empire, at the end of the Roman Empire, that was first century, folks, not the end of the world. We go now to Revelation 1.10. John says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. You hear a trumpet blowing, it tends to be ear shattering, ear splitting, and then Jesus is speaking to him with a huge voice. We know it was Jesus because we, in verse 13, John says, I saw one like a son of man, and his voice was like the sound of many waters in verse 15. So a voice of many waters, like a roaring ocean, like a blasting trumpet, it was loud. Jesus, he had something to say. And he wanted John to listen to him. He was in the spirit. That means he was under the control of the spirit. He might have been in a trance. He just might have been praying in tongues for an hour or so and just feel a little woozy in the Lord. I don't know. But it sounds like he was not just sitting around enjoying the scenery. He was he was really into the Lord there while he was praying. In the spirit can mean in the control of the spirit, in union with the spirit, in the realm of the spirit. And he had to be if he's going to receive a vision like this which he did, Revelation 1, verse 11, saying, let me go back and pick the context of verse 10 up, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, verse 11, saying, this is the loud voice, this is Jesus speaking to John, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, when we get to these churches, I'm going to go through a lot of detail about the churches historically, what the city was like, and so forth. It's very interesting stuff, but right now we'll just mention them. They are all on the western coast of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, Asia Minor, as they used to call it, or Asia. I'm getting ready this October to go see these seven churches, or see the seven places where the seven churches work, which is nothing there but senior now and a bunch of memorial churches there which I'm not really interested in, a little better archaeology, but it will be interesting to see these seven places. They were seven historical places. Smyrna is now Izmir. they got an airport there, so some of them are gone. Some of the cities didn't make it. Ephesus is a, 
archaeological site that I have been there before, and that's a wonderful place to go see. If you want to see what it was like to live in an ancient Near Eastern city, Greek city, it's fun to go there. But at any rate, as I emphasized in the last audio, these were historical churches. They were not church ages, as Mr. Schofield, the eminent dispensationalist, erroneously claims. Revelation one twelve. John continues, Then I turned to see the voice which was speaking with me. To see a voice, uh, I would think it would be hear a voice, but what he means is to see the one with the voice. He turned to see the voice, what the voice was, which was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So before describing the Son of Man in the middle of the lampstands, he describes the seven golden lampstands. Now, the imagery is taken from the holy place. The difference is that in the holy place, there was one lampstand with seven branches. Here, there are seven lampstands. They're all split out. But the symbolism is fairly clear. Seven refers to the divine number, the essential number, the, the perfect divine number, if you will. So seven means divinity, and lamps means light. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus, who is light, is surrounded by light. Perfect light. Complete light. And later on, we'll see that the seven lampstands stand for the seven churches. We'll get that in a minute. Revelation 1, 13-15. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white, or white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now the first thing we see is that John says that Jesus is standing in the middle of the lampstands. This is appropriate. Jesus holds the church together. He's the center of the church's attention, focus, and worship. He's in the middle of all the churches. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. A son of man is the messianic term that Jesus often used to refer to himself. I think there's only two other times in the Gospels where the term son of man is used by other people. For example, in Acts 7, Stephen called Jesus the son of man, but usually it's himself. And whenever Jesus used that term to refer to himself, he's referring back to Daniel 7, 13, in which the Messiah is clearly labeled as the Son of Man. So the Son of Man was a, a messianic term. So let's see where Jesus got that term, Daniel 7, 13 through 15. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is leaving the earth, going up to heaven he approached the Ancient of Days, that was God, and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That's what John, of course, is referring to, the establishment of the kingdom of God, the church, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him, which is characteristic of the church. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's the church, the inter-advent people of God, not the people at the end of the world, but the people that are on the earth now, between the first and second comings of Jesus. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. Well, we don't need to read verse 15. I guess 13 and 14 are the two verses we need. The Son of Man, he's going up to get a kingdom. And so that's most appropriate here. John sees the Son of Man. He's about to say, this is how the kingdom's going to be established. It's going to be established after a lot of tribulation, because those who are suppressing the kingdom need to be destroyed, i.e., the apostate Jews and the Romans. And this son of man was clothed in a robe, etc., etc., etc. Lots of details about his clothing, and all of these details point out that Jesus is continuous with the Old Testament. 
all of the sartorial metaphors are aimed at showing that Jesus is God. For Let's look at this. For example, Jesus here in John's vision, he says he was clothed in a robe and he was girded across his chest with a golden sash. Robe and a sash? Well, that reminds you of the official dress of the high priest. He had a robe and he had a sash. I've got the sights of that in the Old Testament. Just take my word for it. So he was a priest, just like the Old Testament priest. In verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool. Well, that reminds us of the pictures of God in Daniel 7, 9. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, that's God. His vesture, his clothing, was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. So that vision that Daniel had of God, of course, it's just a vision. You can't look really look at God because God is without form. But this vision that Daniel had of God had him having white hair like pure wool. And Jesus says his head and his hair were white like white wool. So going right back to Daniel 7, John is describing Jesus, which shows that Jesus is God, just like the Ancient of Days is God. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Well, going back to Daniel 10:6, we read this. This is the description of Jesus. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. So Daniel sees Jesus in the Old Testament. John sees Jesus in the New Testament. Flaming fire. Fire is hot. It's penetrating. You don't want to mess with it. Jesus can see everything. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, which had been made to glow in a furnace. This reminds us of Daniel's description of the Son of Man in Daniel 10.6, where Daniel describes Jesus as one who, uh, whose arms and feet were like the gleam of polished bronze. His bronze means strength. He's standing. He's got a strong base, maybe. His feet were like furnace bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. That sounds like the Son of Man in Daniel also, Daniel 10.6. The sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. Or the NASB margin has the sound of roaring. It sounds like a roaring sea. So this is Jesus, the appearance of the Son of Man. Of course, he doesn't appear like he did in his human form. Living in Nazareth, but he appeared in his divine form in a vision. Now, of course, I don't mean that this is how Jesus looks like all the time in heaven. This is a vision. Visions were symbolic. Doesn't necessarily mean Jesus is going to have white hair in heaven. We go now to Revelation 1, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. Well, let's just take the face first. His shining face, Jesus is the light of the world. Your face is shining. That means you are bright. You are effulgent. You are glorious. You are radiant. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, seven stars were a symbol well known in the first century. They meant supreme political sovereignty. Seven stars regularly appeared on the emperor's coins. And so the seven stars shows regal authority. Jesus has supreme authority now. John is pretty audacious here. He's saying sovereignty is now in Jesus' hands, not the Roman Empire who put me in exile on this island. <laughs> not the Roman Empire which stupidly killed Jesus. No, authority is in Jesus' hands. John's going to mention these seven stars more in verse 20. He's going to say the seven stars are the messengers to the seven churches. But for right now, we'll just say John sees seven stars in his right hand in the vision. That means Jesus is full authority. And also, he saw out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. And again, this is a vision. This is not Jesus is not living up in heaven with a sword coming out of his mouth. This is a vision. He saw a sharp two-edged sword, and this vision is easy to 
interpret. It reminds me of a song we used to sing with the high praises of God in our mouth and a two-edged sword in our hand. We will march right on into victory, right on into Canaan land. Well, the sword is his word because the sword is coming out of his mouth. So when you see mouth and sword, that is a common biblical symbol for the conquering word of God. Let me give you three scriptures. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So there's the word that comes out of your mouth, the mouth of God, two-edged sword. That's the word of God doing its cutting function as it pierces even to the innermost part of a human being. Isaiah 11.4. He will strike the land with the rod of his mouth. There's the mouth. And with the breath of his lips, there's the mouth, he will slay the wicked. So you got mouth and lips, which is where the word comes from. And then you've got the effect with the slaying of the wicked. That's usually done with a sword. So we go down, we look now at Revelation 2.16. I will make war against them, the Nicolaitans, with the sword of my mouth. In other words, I'm not going to kill them physically with a sword. I'm going to speak my word and my word's going to destroy their stupid heresy. So the word of God is more is 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 more powerful than any sword. Now I said I was going to give you three scriptures linking up the mouth, the word, and the sword, but I failed to include Revelation nineteen thirteen through fifteen. So I'm going to give you four examples. This is a good one. Revelation nineteen thirteen. He Jesus wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So Jesus is the word. A sharp sword came from his mouth. Why? Because the words that he spoke had the effect of a sharp sword. They were cutting. They were powerful. They were conquering. From the words, the words of Jesus were thus. So that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. Now this shows that Jesus rules the world with his word, not with weapons of warfare. That's what the Middle Ages didn't understand. That's what the Franks didn't understand. As they conquered tribes and said, believe in Jesus or we're going to kill you. Get baptized or you're dead. No, it's talking symbolically. The words that come out of Jesus' mouth will rule the nations. Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. John fell on his feet like a dead man. because you see Jesus in all his glory like that? It tends to make one a little bit frightened. So he fell like a dead man. Dead men don't move. I'm sure John wasn't moving. Jesus placed his right hand on John, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So John was afraid, and Jesus calms his fear. He says, I am the first and the last. Jesus is using a description of divinity, of eternity. There's nothing before the first, and there's nothing after the last. That's it. He's everything. God calls himself the first and the last in Isaiah 48:12, which says this, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called, I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. John himself uses the phrase first and last of Jesus, or actually Jesus uses the phrase of himself as he reveals himself to John. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus says this, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and come to life. Revelation 22:13. at the very end of the book, Jesus says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha and the Omega were the Greek letters, two Greek letters, Alpha being the first letter of the alphabet, Omega being the last letter of the alphabet. So Jesus is the first and the last. And when you say first and last, that means nothing before him, nothing after him. He's eternal. We are creatures of time. We all get born and die and change all the time. But Jesus, he's eternal. It would be nice to be outside of the ravages of time. 
I saw something the other day talking about old people, somebody's somebody who was not ravaged by weight and time. <laughs> so talking about getting old and everything falling apart. Jesus doesn't fall apart. He's eternal. And of course, we are eternal too if we're in him. Revelation 1.18, and the living one, Jesus, Jesus continues, and he says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That means he was killed on Good Friday, and then he was resurrected, and he's alive forevermore. He's going to live forever. He's not going to die anymore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, this phrase, I am the living one, shows that Jesus is God, because living one is a description of divinity. It's an Old Testament title for God. Let me show you the scriptures, Deuteronomy 5.26. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire? Joshua 3.10, and Joshua said, Hereby you shall know that the living God is among you. There's a living God as opposed to dead idols. Psalm 42.2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Jeremiah 10.10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. So when Jesus identifies himself with the living God, he's saying he's divine. He's God, fully God, as well as fully man. Now, Jesus says that he has the keys of death and Hades. If you have the key to something, that means you can go in, you can come out, you can lock people out, or you can lock people in. You have total control. Well, Jesus has total control of death. He can say, you're coming in here, you're going to die. Or he can say, no, you're not going to come in here, you're not going to die. Hades, of course, is really just another way of saying death. It can mean hell, too, but I'm assuming it just means death here. He can control who's going to live and who's going to die. And, of course, there's going to be a lot of dying in Revelation. going to be a lot of living, too, as the church is sealed. The 144,000 are symbolically sealed on their forehead. They live. Jesus has the keys to keep them from going into the realm of the dead. He also has the keys that keep the unrighteous people of the earth locked up in the, into death where they can't come out unrighteously because they're of their sin against God. The Roman Empire claimed to have the power of life and death, but Jesus is the true king. He's the one who really has the power of life and death. Revelation 1.19, Therefore, John continues, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Now, some people say that what John is doing is giving an outline of the whole book. The things which you have seen are said to be the vision of Christ, which is now looking at Jesus in the middle of the seven lampstands. And the things which are, that is said to be the seven churches of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after these things are said to be the things that refer to the future in verses 4 through 22. I think that's reasonable, but some commentator I had, unfortunately I didn't write his name down, says that that's not really what's happening here. This is not meant to be a chronological outline of the whole book, says this commentator. He says that the past, present, and future are all woven together in one book, and that the things which are, are is the explanation of the things which you have seen. In other words, you've seen Jesus with the seven stars in the middle of the seven lampstands, and the things which are is a explanation of that vision. And the things which will take place after these things are the things that come after that. Well, I don't know. I don't know how that is. It'll go either way with me. I don't really care. But I will say this. The things which will take place after these things, those things are going to happen soon. S-O-O-N. Because John has already said in Revelation 1, verse 1, first part of the verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him, God gave Jesus to show his servants what must soon take place. So the idea of the past, if, if you take this 
passage as past, present, and future, which I think is reasonable. The idea is that God is in, in control of all of history. It's parallel with what is said in verse 8 about God who was and is and is to come. Let me read that for you. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. See, not only is Jesus the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, but God is the Alpha and the Omega also. We go now to verse 20, and we will finish up chapter 1. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, Jesus continues to talk to John, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, we've already talked about the basic symbolism, the seven angel, seven stars are a symbol of authority, but here... The seven stars are explicitly said or explicitly explained to us. The explanation of the symbolism has told us the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, unfortunately, now we need to know what the angels of the seven churches are. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's pretty easy. Why is a church said to be a lampstand? Well, lamps give light, and that's what churches are supposed to do. They're supposed to give light. All right, let's start with these angels. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, the Greek word is angelos. Or something to that effect. I think a single is angelos, angelos, I guess you'd say. And that word can either mean angel or it can be messenger. Well, the simplest way to take this, in my opinion, is to say the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. John is going to send out messages to those seven churches in western Turkey, western Anatolia, and they're going to have to have messengers to carry the message. And I think that makes sense. That's the simplest way to take it. Each church had an angel to deliver the news. For example, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church of Ephesus, and to the messenger of the church of Ephesus, say this and this and thus. So John tells the messenger, the messenger relays the message to the church of Ephesus. I don't think that's hard to do. I think that's the best way to do it. Now, many people try to say they're the bishops of the seven churches. This can't be, because the early church, when John was writing in the 60s, they had no bishops. They had plural elders. No bishops. No one-man pastors, no one-man angel. No, it's not it. Or it could be there's an angel that's supposed to be looking out after the seven churches. Well, well, you know, I can't refute that, but in my opinion, it's just talking about messengers. Now, seven churches, as I said earlier, they're particular individual historic churches. They're not church ages. John probably picked them, even though they're historic, actual he probably picked seven for symbolic reasons. There's seven everywhere in the book of Revelation, just like there's seven everywhere in the Torah, in the Old Testament. Seven is God's number. And it's also interesting to note that exactly seven churches were written to in the New Testament. Now, that might be taken a little far, but they represent the church of Christ in its fullness because of seven is the divine number of completion and fullness. Well, you've got seven churches. That means this represents the universal church of God. Well, maybe so. Now, the interesting thing is that these seven churches representing the universal church of God, most of them had certain defects and problems. Paul, John is going to deal with those problems in chapters 2 and 3, and we'll take that up as we move into the next chapter. I'm finished here with John chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, the appearance the Son of Man appears to John. In our next audio, we will cover Revelation chapter 2, verses 111, concerning the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.